0: This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by ProMega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. And it looks like most of the pop culture references they have for us are either like evil or just socially awkward.
1: Chemicals are people, my friend.
2: Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learned about a program that connects scientists just like you with classrooms around the world. Stay with us.
1: And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 99. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. I got 99 episodes, Dan. And this is one. This is one of them. Yep. I feel some pressure. What are we going to do next episode? <laughs> you keep asking. And I keep <laughs> saying probably the same thing we do every week. Well, I feel like we have to do something to mark the occasion. 100 episodes, that seems like something. I know. You let me know what that is, Josh. Okay. Uh, tune in next time to see if we did anything special. But <laughs> keep your expectations <laughs>
2: Disappointment on the way.
1: <laughs> next time we're not going to say stay with
2: us. We'll say... Or And we're back. It's going to be something totally amazing. We are back. Yeah, you've
1: done that too. Oh, maybe we'll switch it up. You can say, I'm Daniel Arman, and I'm Joshua Hall. We'll switch the order. Some people just want to watch the world burn, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dan, here's some good news. We are drinking our last listener beer sent to us from Matthew from Utah. I failed to see how that's good news. Why would we want to be drinking the last one? Oh, well, that's true. That's true. I guess the fact that uh, we were drinking another listener I'm beer. excited to be trying another one. What did you choose this time? Well, maybe this will, will brighten your mood a little bit. We're back on the IPA train. This is the Hopulent IPA from Epic Brewing in Salt Lake City. And Dan, so you know, I think I've talked about it on the show, but my go-to beer really for the last year at least has been the Session IPA. Uh, And I think we've talked about that before, but a session beer tends to be one that is a lower alcohol content, a little um, easier drinking, uh, but I've been into those session IPAs. This is not one. So if you remember Epic Brewing, they're into the big bottles of the high alcohol stuff. I do remember. This is an 8.6% IPA. So this is a a real, real IPA here. And what's your verdict? I just don't know about these high alcohol Too heavy for you? Yeah, you know. I'm trying to explain how would you explain is it the is it the mouth feel or is it the flavor you know Cause they are there there's like a thickness to it, and I don't know why that would be because you'd think alcohol would make it lighter but i I think what it might be is the higher alcohol content almost gives a richness, a sweetness or a richness to the beer that I'm just not as big of a fan, yeah this is not a
2: a dry flavor. Um, I get some orange out of this one. That was my first impression.
1: Yeah, I do think the flavor on this is great. And, and that's something I feel like you don't get as much of from the session beers as you get from these higher alcohol beers is a richness in flavor, which I guess I just said I don't like, but I, <laughs> I guess I don't know what the I like is. I don't like flavor. I like all things <laughs> to like taste flavor. like bland cardboard. I don't know. Maybe I'm on my quest for the perfect uh, perfect IPA. Can I
2: make a random observation? Please. Um, so we have our show notes a little behind the scenes action here mm-hmm. we have our show notes in google docs and when you initially typed in the name of the beer hopulent you added an extra o so it looked like hop and google underlined it as a spelling error but when i took out the second o it didn't underline it it knows the hopulent is a valid word and that concerns me is hopulent a word does that mean something it is not of course i checked miriamwebster.com uh-huh. for hopulent it suggests i meant opulent corpulent hopling or crapulent uh, none of which do i mean i just Crap- think that's the fourth <laughs> suggestion
1: i'll stick with the hopulent okay exactly that's anyways well what i didn't say is i have installed the craft beer plug craft- browser. it has to be yeah. i, I yeah. don't
2: know i just got vaguely concerned that it knew what we were talking about and it was mad that we spelled it incorrectly
1: <laughs> hey that's useful right it was right it is yep i'm sure
2: that's there's nothing nefarious going on well thanks again matthew we have thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed these beers And uh, hopefully that shows.
1: And to the rest of our listening audience, we are fresh out of beer, so... Check the back of the fridge. Hey, Dan, one last thing. I would be remiss uh, if I didn't say, but both of us have birthdays this week. Actually, you already had one. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to you, Dan. Thanks, Josh. You too. Yeah. In advance. Hey, Dan, I wanted to make sure we talk about a really cool opportunity coming up from our friends at ProMega. What are they doing, Josh? On September 11th, which is just a few weeks away. That's less than a month away now. 2018. In case you're listening from the future, <laughs> 2018.
2: Well, people are going to listen back to the other no, people. It do could that. Be next no, year. People sometime. do that. Yep. Um, okay. So September 11th,
1: 2018. September 11th, 2018. They've got two amplification experts who are going to be hosting a live webinar to answer any and all questions you have about ensuring a successful PCR every time. And they were accepting questions up until August 17th. So hopefully everybody got their questions
2: submitted. Um, But if you want to register, you can still attend. Go to promega.com slash hello PCR to register.
1: Yeah, and I think if if you're involved in doing PCR at all, and who doesn't want to um, increase the likelihood of success with your PCR? All right, Dan. It's time for the valiant return of Science in the News. Josh, it is summertime.
2: Have you been to the beach yet? I know you love to go to the beach.
1: Yeah, my family and I, we took a little weekend trip to the beach uh, probably about three weeks ago, and we're hoping to get one more beach trip in before the end of warm weather.
2: Okay. Uh, Are you good about sunscreening, you and the kids and everybody? Oh, yeah.
1: I am totally OCD about the sunscreen. You know, I didn't used to be. I'm fairly... I have a somewhat fair complexion, as do you, and I got some really awful sunburns with blisters and everything when I was a kid, and I remember how miserable I felt. Did you get some sunburns as a kid? Yeah, I I definitely did. I mean, not that many. I grew up in the north, but yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh, and I can remember going to bed, and it just hurt like every position, and you'd get these blisters, and so um, as I got older and smarter, I'm very diligent about the sunscreen. Okay, well, I have two public service announcements for all our listeners. Number one, wear sunscreen. I think a great invention is the spray, sunscreen. Like the spray, yeah. My biggest barrier, actually, that's kind of a funny joke, barrier to sunscreen. Uh, the biggest barrier for me with sunscreen is it just always seemed to take so much time to, like, put the lotion on everywhere. You've got to, like, get into the water immediately? What is you, What? Uh, how much time do you not have on well, your just, vacation? Like, the spray is just so quick. Actually, yeah. I even spray it right into my face and... uh Oh, yeah. Keep yeah.
2: your eyes closed. You don't rub it on the hand. You're not supposed then... to
1: rub it. You just spray it on.
2: Yeah, but I thought if you were going to put it on your face, you, like, spray it in your know. hand and sore. apply it. it
1: seems to work. Seems to work. I don't know. Okay. Um. Josh is now blind, but that's... <laughs> I'm sure I don't breathe. Uh, don't when breathe. I do. yeah, yeah, don't open yeah. your mouth. Get your tongue. Yeah, I spray it on my face, and then I, like move to a different location, so I'm not breathing in the... You fumes. walk through it like a perfume at the <laughs> department store? A, that's yeah, pretty much what okay. I do, actually.
2: That is not an effective way to apply sunscreen. Okay, so your second public service announcement is that beginning January 1st, 2021, if you are in Hawaii, you will not be able to buy sunscreens that contain oxybenzone or octinoxate. I don't. You probably don't have your sunscreen around here. i uh, am interested to
1: know. Actually, Dan, I do because I just got back from Florida and I bought a couple of the travel size that are actually right in my living room. Through I the power of radio. Go get it. Okay. All right, Dan, so I got this uh, banana boat, travel size, cool zone. <laughs> uh, what am I looking for here?
2: You want to see if it has oxybenzone or octanoxate, uh, also labeled maybe as benzophenone-3 or octal...
1: Methoxycinnamate. would that be an active ingredient
2: yes okay
1: chemical sunblock uh looks like we've got some exobenzone, some octocrylene and some oxybenzone okay
2: so the oxybenzone will no longer be a viable uh, sunscreen in hawaii after 2021 uh, i know this this sounds exciting to you but th- the reason is that uh, it actually seems to be toxic to coral reefs,
1: well, luckily we don't have any coral reefs here in North Carolina,
2: not in your pool. So I think this is fine for your <laughs> pool adventure. Um, maybe it's fine for your pool adventure. Hear me out. So the the bill banning these two substances in sunscreens uh, started with some research done by a scientist called Craig Downs. He's a forensic ecotoxicologist, which I think is a pretty cool title to have. yeah, uh, and he's the executive director of the Herecticus Environmental Laboratory. Uh, in a 2015 article that he published with a lot of other people in the Archives of Environmental Contamination and Toxicology, he tested the toxicity of the sunscreen chemical oxybenzone, and that's the one that I want to kind of talk about today, on the larval form of a particular type of coral and on seven different coral species in vitro.
1: And I'm assuming if, if that chemical oxybenzone is in this can of spray sunscreen right here, It's probably in most commercially available sunscreens.
2: Yes, it is a... Well, I don't know if it's in most, but it is one of the chemical sunblocks. There are physical sunblocks that actually physically block the sun rather than absorbing the UV
1: rays. Like clothing.
2: Right, clothing. (laughs) Uh, What's the stuff that you put on your nose? Zinc zinc oxide, yeah. yeah. Zinc oxide, exactly. So um, in the study, they found that oxybenzone is a a phototoxicant. It actually is still toxic in the dark, but it, it is more... Uh, aggressive when it's exposed to light, and they they showed a dose-dependent toxicity to these uh, particular species of coral. It transformed this larval coral, which is supposed to be in a modal state. It swims and deposits itself in in new places and then builds a new reef. It transforms them from this modal state to a deformed sessile condition. Uh, It causes genetic damage, and it acts as an endocrine disruptor where it actually induces the, the little swimming coral larvae to ossify, so it totally encapsulates in its own skeleton. So that sounds bad. So that that, that genetic damage should be sounding pretty good to you uh, right now, Josh. I don't know the effects on humans um, in terms of those same things, and obviously, coral has a different endocrine system than we do.
1: So how do these how do these concentrations? You said these are in vitro experiments. So how do these concentrations compare to concentrations the coral might experience? in nature?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So the lethal concentration uh, for a 24-hour exposure is about 139 micrograms per liter. Um, and this is where the, the place where it's causing bleaching of the coral reefs. The actual contamination when they measured it in Hawaiian sites was between 0.8 and 19.2 micrograms per liter. Um, this was back in 2015 again. So much lower than the lethal the LC 50, but in the U S Virgin islands, the, that measurement range from 75 micrograms to 1.4 milligrams per liter. So that's a lot. And I have been swimming on the coral reefs in the Virgin islands and uh, yeah, they're, I bet you were wearing risk. sunscreen
1: when you did. I certainly
2: was. And who knows which one I was wearing? I don't know. It was many, many years ago, but um, you know, climate change is already stressing coral reefs. And so this is like another factor that may be making it worse.
1: So obviously, so you said this research was from 2015 initially. Uh, So it sounds like people are actually taking note of this.
2: They are, yeah. Lawmakers are taking note, uh, particularly in Hawaii, where they're obviously achieving some sort of uh, economic benefit from tourism. um, and, And they hopefully appreciate the value of their coral reefs. But again, not everyone supports the ban. Uh, Jay Sirios, who is a uh, senior director in regulatory scientific affairs at the Consumer Healthcare Products Association, said essentially what's happening is two ingredients that are both safe and effective for use in sunscreen are being banned, essentially on the basis of a single study which claims that these ingredients harm coral reefs. Now, I should say that um, this group that he's the the director of, of is an associ- it's a trade association representing manufacturers like Johnson & Johnson's, Neutrogena, Bayer, Covertone, Sunscreen. So Not an unbiased source. Not necessarily unbiased, uh, but he says this has to be viewed in the wider picture of the significant amount of evidence available that shows there are other more important causes of coral decline, such as global warming, overfishing, pollution, and runoff. So he's not wrong. He is not wrong. That's true, yeah. He's saying these other things are probably more important. I don't know if that's an argument for not making the ban, though.
1: I, I guess what I'm wondering, and I don't know if you, if you read anything about this, are there other viable sunscreen materials or compounds that could replace uh, these active ingredients that are harming the corals?
2: Yeah, I mean, we talked about one. The zinc oxide is a, is a possibility. I no, don't know about the toxicity of I'm not going to put that on. You've seen that. you got actually... Yeah, I'm gonna look like. Uh, <laughs> there are there are some that don't look that that are not quite that thick and and don't look that bright white.
1: Um, I mean, I put it on my nose just to look cool.
2: Yeah, there are others that kind of blend in a little bit better. And I think there are other you, your sunscreen lists several other chemicals that might be alright. Um, and I think one of the questions is how do you balance how do you value the health of this coral reefs around the world and human health. Because if if there are fewer choices in sunscreen, you could argue that maybe fewer people have access or use it. Or, um, you know, maybe they just react differently. Or maybe these other chemical sunblocks are toxic in a different way that we just haven't figured out yet. So I think that's, that's one of the concerns is that by taking these off
1: the market, something else will replace it that's not as, that's worse. Well, so this makes me think about, you know, this was one guy who studied this one chemical in this one context and found that it had an effect. but I just think about all of the different compounds and chemicals that you know i'm we probably use and are exposed to every day yeah one of the one of the ones people talk about a lot
2: recently is um the pesticides, the new nicotinoids that um some people believe are harming bee populations. that's one of the ones that comes up in the news quite a bit. And I think what's interesting is there's a big difference in the U.S. in how we tend to uh, assess the, the toxicity or the impact of chemicals versus Europe and the EU. So in the United States, it feels like chemicals are innocent until proven guilty. And so we put something on the market and in 15 years, when we realize, oh, we've just poisoned this product. So think of DDT back in the day, right?
1: Chemicals are people, my friend. Chemicals are people. So
2: uh, one example, lead was removed from paint in Europe in 1909. It took the U.S. till 1978
1: to in 1909, really? Yeah. So we kind of knew the thing, the lead being bad thing, for quite a while.
2: Yeah, lead's bad. Turns out, who who'd have guessed? Um, and and the neonicotinoids that I mentioned, there's a moratorium in the EU, a uh, two-year moratorium. I think they may be banned now. And in the United States, they're still available. Um, one of the weirder examples, in the United States, you know, we can have fruit juice and, and um, macaroni and cheese and breakfast cereal that have red dye 40, yellow dye 5, number 6. Um, in the United Kingdom, those are taken off the market due to health concerns. And in the rest of Europe, they carry a label that says that they have potential adverse effects. So... There's a big difference in how Europe and the United States are treating things, and that comes down to the way that we approve chemicals, and it's very different.
1: That's a big topic. I told you.
2: (laughs) The European Commission has a principle that says that aims at ensuring a higher level of environmental protection through preventative decision-making, whereas in the United States, the FDA basically asks the companies that produce the food to do the research themselves and then report on the study. I'm findings. sure that works great. Yeah, so, so that's in food. Um, I think with sunscreen chemicals and things that you're not consuming, the, the bar is even lower for doing that approval. And I guess my open question is, which end of the spectrum do we want to be on? Permissive, wherein we get a lot of new things on the market, probably has a lot of economic development, but may have long-term impacts, versus do we want to be really careful uh, because you can't put the
1: genie back in the bottle. What do you think, Josh? I think that sounds like a philosophical question. Answer it on Twitter, people. <laughs> All right, Dan, thanks for that. Uh, in the meantime, I'm not sure what I should do. Uh, I'm going to start checking my labels of my sunscreen. Uh, I'm to start believe- using it as Banaka, just like spraying <laughs> in your mouth. <laughs> uh, I'm going to believe that scientists are going to, industrial scientists are going to be, be able to come up with a better, safer sunscreen. Just wear a hat. There you go. All right, Dan, are you ready to move on to our topic of the week? I want to hear the topic. All right, Dan, I am really excited about this topic. A couple weeks back, I had a chance to have a conversation with Sarah McInulty, who is a grad student at the University of Connecticut. And besides being a grad student who studies squid, uh, she is the founder of a nonprofit Skype a Scientist, and I have I've heard of the Skype a Scientist program before, um, but just recently got connected with Sarah and have been following her research exploits on Twitter. And I mentioned she studies squid. I gotta admit, Dan, the more time that goes by, the more regret I have about not being a field biologist. Yeah, you have mentioned before that you.
2: Want to understand the world of field biology and what these people do? Is it is it just the
1: ability to be outside for science? Is that what draws you? I mean, Dan, your experience was very similar to mine. Um, how much of our at least day to day experience was moving small volumes of liquid from one tube to another tube? Um, sometimes you got to use the light box to look at your gel. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but you know, we were actually before we started recording, we were scrolling through Sarah's uh, Twitter feed. All, and looking at all these really cool photos and videos of, of squid and, and other sea life, it's just so tangible. Well, and and so, she got to visit Japan, right? Didn't she just take a trip? Yes, yeah, she just got back from Japan. She apparently went to the Squid Museum. Just so cool. Like, so many cool things. If your research can be mailed to you on dry ice, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you need to be able to travel around the world to do science. I think it's a requirement. Yeah, no, that's totally true. And I will say this is uh, providing a little bit of a a spoiler. After the interview, we will give you some info about how you can actually hear Sarah talk live on Skype about her own research on cephalopods. And I think she'll probably talk a lot about those cute little squid and and why she's so interested in them. Well, let's go right to the interview, Josh. Uh, You've got my curiosity piqued. Even though I think squid are kind of
2: gross. Uh, the pictures that she posted looked amazing. So let's let's hear what she had to say. All right.
0: I'm Sarah McAdulty. I'm a, a entering my sixth year in my PhD at the University of Connecticut. I work with Hawaiian bobtail squid. I'm studying cell and developmental biology. Um, and I also founded the nonprofit Skype a Scientist, which is a program that um, connects scientists with non-scientists, mostly classrooms. And this program is like a super easy way for scientists to connect with non-scientists without even having to leave the lab. So the program effectively connects these groups with scientists for video chats, and you can um, chat about your science or your area of expertise or how you got to where you are or what it's like to be a scientist, mostly in question and answer format. So you don't have to prepare a lecture. You can just get up there and start having a conversation with people.
1: Oh, wow. So, so you all actually provide some guidance to scientists who sign up.
0: Yeah, so we um, have a pretty rough framework for how to do it because I think a lot of people generally have preferences with how they run these kinds of things. So we really leave it kind of up to the scientists, but we have suggestions for how we, um, like if you don't know where to begin, how we would do it if, if, if it was us. So generally speaking, what happens is you sign up and then you give us your preferences. So like maybe you only want to work with adults. Maybe you only want to work with seniors. Maybe you really prefer working with elementary school kids. We can um, accommodate all that. And then you get a match in the in your email. And then you and your the teacher will set up the time that you're going to be communicating. And you'll send the teacher maybe like a little blurb about yourself and also um, maybe something for the kids to read. So maybe there's... Um, a TED Talk that either you've done or maybe someone um, in your field has done, maybe a blog post you've written, something that'll generally give the kids a primer on the type of science that you do so they know the kinds of questions that would be appropriate to ask. And then the sessions when they open up, normally you just say like, hi, I'm Sarah McAdalty, I'm a squid biologist, and these are a couple of things that I'm into, both professionally and like Feel like one of the nice things of the program is that you can the kind of one of the goals is to really sketch out that scientists are more than what kind of movies and television have depicted us as. Um, we're like real full people. So you do that, and then pretty much you open it up to questions. Um, we strongly encourage the teachers to uh, have their students prepare questions ahead of time, so that you're not going into the classroom and then looking out at a sea of blank stares. And that generally works pretty well,
1: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how do teachers find out about you? how do How do teachers actually find out about this and sign up?
0: So we have some connections in um, the National Science Teacher Association that have gotten the word out. We've communicated with the Department of Education at each state level. So um, we contacted them, and they've spread the word. It's a lot of word of mouth though. Um, I've posted on a bunch of like Facebook, Boards for teachers, and that's been super helpful. The March for Science pages, the regional marches, have been um, great places, like kind of like hubs for people who would be interested in this kind of thing. Um, and then Twitter is also super helpful. I have a fair number of teachers that follow me on Twitter, so I can get the word out that way.
1: That's great. So, um, so you're a graduate student. Yep. So, what led you to to start? Skype a scientist, I happen to know, having been a grad student and I know a lot of grad students, that grad students are pretty busy people
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so so yeah what what led you to look outside the bench and start this program?
0: So I was kind of um, observing that there was this kind of growing mistrust in science, and I couldn't really understand why you know I would be online and I would see like for example, on Facebook, I'd see someone I went to high school with thinks that she's doing a juice cleanse to cleanse her liver. And like, that's nonsense or someone's not going to vaccinate their kids.
1: You know, you've got to get rid of those toxins.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like as if your liver doesn't already (laughs) do that on its own. So I, I, you just sort of see like people going to alternate places to find information about how they can be their most healthy self. And I think that people just don't trust scientists anymore. I don't know, or at least it's not as much as they used to. Um, And so I kind of, thought about like, okay, why would that be? Like, why would you not trust science? It's The whole point of science is to find truth. So it's sort of discouraging to see people not trusting um, us as a group. So I looked to see where people could access scientists in their daily lives. And it looks like most of the pop culture references they have for us are either like evil or just socially awkward or, um, you know, generally not up to anything good. And even when they're they have noble intentions, you end up with like Jurassic Park or whatever. So,
1: Yeah, that's, that's one of my pet peeves that I always talk about when I do science outreach is how come in movies the scientist is always evil?
0: I know, absolutely. It's like nine times out of ten, it's a white man. And even when it's a white woman, like we're often the villains. And it's just, it's so discouraging because I, all the scientists I know are pretty much delightful.
1: Yeah, very, very few are evil. A few, are, but most
0: yeah, are not. Yeah, a few, <laughs> for sure. But most of us are pretty nice and generally have good intentions when we're out there doing our science. So I was like, okay, let's just think of a way to get real active, actively working scientists talking to non-scientists. And I thought that classrooms would be kind of like low-hanging fruit for trying this out um, because you have basically a captive audience in the classroom and um, people that may or may not be interested in science. Okay. So for example, if you're doing like a science cafe or doing a sort of a science event in the community, you might be attracting people that are already interested in science. This is also true if you're blogging. Like when I'm on Twitter, I know I'm already attracting a group of people that like science uh, in the first place. So I wanted to kind of like figure out a way, like where in society do you have people, like a basic cross-section of the whole culture. And I thought school would be a good place to start with that. Um, So yeah, we started with classrooms and it like just totally took off from there. And uh, now we also like go to libraries and like book clubs and uh, like knitting groups or whatever. Anybody who wants to sign up can do that.
1: So it's not just K through 12 students that you all are connecting with.
0: So anybody can sign up as long as there are seven people together, they can sign up.
1: Very cool. So, how's it going so far? How, how long ago was it when you started this? And and how's the progress been since you started?
0: So, we started in January of 2017. Um, and that first semester, we had about 400, 400 scientists and 800 classrooms sign oh, up. Wow, that's a lot. I mean, yeah, it took off really well, really quickly. And then in the fall, that like, so last fall, we had, I think, 4,000 classrooms sign up. And then it's just been growing ever since. So we're trying to hit 10,000 classrooms for this school year. Um, And we're well on our way to doing that. So, um, yeah.
1: That's amazing. So is a limiting factor the number of scientists that you can get to sign up?
0: Shockingly, no. Um, One thing about being a scientist is that you're pretty good at uh, networking with other scientists. We go to meetings and we can all talk to each other. So um, it's been pretty easy getting scientists to sign up. I think that in the last couple of years, there's been sort of like a lot of energy and people don't really know what to do with it. Like they want to help, but they're not really sure what to do. And Skype a Scientist is like the easiest thing that you could do to give back and to communicate with uh, non-scientists because you don't need to totally establish a new um, outreach event from the ground up. Like if you wanted to start like science trivia at local pubs, it takes a lot of activation energy to get that going and to do Skype a Scientist you just like sign up and it's pretty much done for you it's like it takes an hour of your time and a couple emails so um, I think that's part of the reason that it's been so easy to get scientists to sign up getting teachers to sign up I mean of course thousands and thousands have signed up but I think I'm just more tapped into scientist to scientist communication than teacher groups but we're improving on that every semester so um, we actually just got a grant from the American Society for Cell Biology Um, they gave us 400 bucks to advertise online. So we're hoping that that really helps us um, reach teachers that we haven't reached yet. Um, we also sent out like a bunch of postcards to rural classrooms and low income schools to hope that that'll sort of help. Cause we know a lot of the sign or a lot of the classrooms who've signed up so far have these like young, really energetic teachers that kind of are like going online and digging deep and find um, sort of cool programs to bring into their classroom. And we want to kind of expand that to hit teachers that um, maybe don't actively seek this stuff out, but if they see it come across their Facebook feed and an ad, that they can find out about it.
1: Do you have any cool sort of one-off stories for kind of a neat impact or or outcome from one of these Skype a scientist sessions? Something that's happened.
0: Um, so I, I've had a couple like really short stories. So we ask uh, both the teachers and the scientists to tell us. Like I asked the the scientists to give me like their favorite question that they got. And I know one, um, scientist was studying reptiles and they had a bearded dragon as a, like a classroom pet. And so they like took pictures with their dragon and like their bearded dragon, like (laughs) brought it up to the, uh, the screen and got all excited about it. So I thought that was super cute. That's cool. Um, and I asked the teachers after the semester's over, like, do you think that, um, your students have increased their interest in science or, have changed in their perception of scientists. And um, we've had like, it, it's really varied like how the teachers have um, sort of incorporated this into their lessons. But I know some have done the uh, little exercise where you draw a scientist before you meet a scientist and then you mm-hmm. draw a scientist after you uh, talk to a scientist. And that's been like really fun to kind of watch develop because you go from the old guy with the white hair and like things blowing up in the background to like a woman in the field, like working with fish or or something, which is great to see. <clears throat> I know we had one student that wasn't particularly interested in science uh, before the session and then decided to go and major in biology um, in college. So that was really exciting to see. But yeah, there's been lots of like little things that, that come back that are heartening and uh, nice to see. I know we've gotten a lot of teachers just emailing me saying how important that the program was and how fun it was for their students and how kind of like it really brought life into their classroom for this kind of thing because you can have scientists like they'll sometimes pick up their computers and like walk around their lab to show students what a like real science lab looks like because i think people think that like science labs are first of all way more complicated and expensive looking than they are and i think that that sort of kind of is like a reality check for people which is i don't know fun for the students and uh,
1: helpful overall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've done some programming where we've actually taken high school students into the science lab for just an mm-hmm. afternoon. And what I usually do is at the end of that, I'll do a debriefing where they'll talk a little bit about the things they saw during the afternoon in the lab. But then I always ask if there's anything that surprised them. And several times I've had student high school students who said, oh yeah, people were laughing and that really surprised me. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, "What? Did, who did you think we were?"
0: They think we're like, like emotionless robots. robots yeah, honestly, yeah. yeah. And when they find out that like some of us are funny, like it really they uh, listen to music. It helps like, a lot. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. Like, yeah. do you? I, I want. Uh, I was talking to like a high school class in California, and one of them was like, "Do you guys drink beer?" And we're like, "Yeah, of course we do." Yeah,
1: you know? <laughs> they should listen to our podcast. <laughs> we drink beer every episode.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So obviously, this this is a become a very big program. And I imagine it's been um, quite a bit of effort for you um, in the midst Mm -hmm. of also doing graduate school. So tell me a little bit about, are there, are there any things that you've learned from doing this? Um, Is this helpful to maybe your career or changed or altered your career trajectory at all? Um, Or just tell me a little bit about what, what maybe you've learned through doing this project?
0: I've learned things that I never would have expected to get out of graduate school. First of all, managing um, a huge group of people um, has been a learning experience as we go. Um, I've also learned how to like deal with uh, tax law um, because we've applied to be a 501c3, so a nonprofit, so the, we're tax exempt. Um, that's been a yeah. pff, totally unexpected <laughs> lesson. Um, also, like marketing, I wouldn't have thought... Uh, I would have been doing during my PhD, but it's been a learning lesson there. Um, and then in terms of what I thought I was going to do for a career and what I'm doing now, so I originally thought I would be continuing in research um, and going on to the postdoc and the tenure track, but I've really had a lot of fun with science communication um, during the sort of last half of my PhD. And this program has really like helped me dig into that a lot and also kind of helping scientists Show their personality while talking about science. Science has been um, something that I find super rewarding, and that kind of like the amount of effort I put in and seeing the result that comes back. There's like a higher sort of reward per unit energy um, mm. that comes out of this kind of work than maybe in the lab. I, I love lab work. I love working with my squid. Um, I, I generally speaking love academia, but I think that. I can have a bigger impact doing this kind of thing than, than in academia. Mm
1: -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So what advice, you know, one thing I always like to ask when we have, have people on the show is, you know, I mentioned most of our audience are graduate students themselves, maybe postdocs, other trainees. So what, what advice do you have for other grad students? Um, Do you have any sort of words of wisdom that you would give to other people going through grad school right now?
0: Uh, I guess just keep your options open and uh, don't pigeonhole yourself too early. I um, and I guess don't be afraid to explore side projects because I th- you never know what's gonna like really be the thing that um, either becomes your career or becomes your main project. Like even um, just in terms of my thesis work, I was primarily working on immune cells and then I g- g- sort of got like sidetracked in this interesting project that is turning into one of my main thesis chapters. So like kind of follow what you think is interesting um, to a limit and be open minded as you go through and don't like, um, like let yourself have fun too. Cause I think that a lot of times grad school can feel really stressful and uh, you can get kind of bogged down in the expectations and all the things that you're required to do. And uh, it's very easy to not to kind of forget to take a step back and, um, Appreciate the freedom that you have in this part of your career and really let yourself take advantage of that
1: yeah I think that I think that's great advice, and a lot of times I don't think we realize that until after we're out of grad school and we realize, oh man, I really missed that. I really had more freedom than I thought I had at the time, yeah, uh, so I think that's really uh really observant of you um, and clearly you're making the most of it, so that's cool, yeah, so I guess the the last thing is you know Skype a scientist sounds like an amazing opportunity. Clearly, it's really taken off and is doing a really important service to you know to scientists and and also to the public as well. So I know a lot of our listeners are going to be really interested in this. So how can people get involved? How can scientists get involved if they want to be part of Skype a Scientist?
0: It's super easy. All you have to do is go to Skype a Scientist all one word com. Um, and right on the homepage, there'll be a link to sign up for scientists, but you can also kind of play around and see, um, the resources that we have on the site for science, like for practicing your science communication. And we also have these, uh, sessions that will be happening this fall that we're calling Skype a Scientist Live. So these are with, um, scientists that have like medium to large followings on social media, uh, that are active scientists so like David Steen. He's a herpetologist and we've got a, a whole bunch. We've got, uh, Rachel Burks, who's a, a chemist and doing forensics, uh, it's going to be pretty cool. Um, so you can see how those sessions work. If you're like a little bit hesitant um, before you want to get started, if you want to watch one, I'll be doing one September fourth, and yeah, just give it a shot. Also, don't be afraid to do it because generally speaking, all the sessions that I've heard about have gone really well, and the kids have enjoyed it. And even if you're a younger grad student, like you're only in your second year or whatever, don't uh, be intimidated because even if you've been doing this for, you know, you've been a scientist for 20 years probably a second grader is going to come up with a question that you don't know the answer to <laughs> and it's okay like it's just saying that you don't know the answer is fine and honestly kind of helpful because then it teaches these kids like just because you're a scientist doesn't mean you know everything um and that may be a more important experience for that kid to have than someone who is like a living encyclopedia
1: absolutely so yeah the last thing where can people find you online
0: you can find me on Twitter. I uh, tweet all day long at Sarah MacAttack. That's S-A-R-A-H-M-A-C-K Attack. Also on Instagram, the same thing. Um, I put up pictures of squid and squid information all the time. And also outreach information as well. And then if you want to follow Skype a Scientist specifically, we have a Facebook group. We have an Instagram. We've got um, a Twitter at Skype Scientist. That's all linked on com. so you can find us there as well.
1: That sounds great. And we will make sure we put links to all that in our show notes. Sarah, thanks for taking time to come on and talk to us today.
0: Yeah, thanks. No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, Dan, that was our interview with Sarah. If there is an easier
2: way to do science outreach, I have not heard of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's what is so awesome about this program. And I was blown away. I did not realize how big the program had quickly become. Huge, absolutely amazing that that quickly, she's got that many
2: scientists and that many teachers trying to connect. I I think it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, I think that says a lot about the desire that scientists have to communicate with the public and to do outreach. Uh, but oftentimes, and, and Dan, you know, I've been involved in, in science outreach programs for a number of years. And the hard part really is making those connections or not knowing how to make those connections with, uh, you know, with local classrooms or people in your community. And, and Sarah and, and everyone involved with Skype a scientist has taken that hurdle out. So all you need to do is just be willing to show up and talk about your work. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, what a great thing to put on your CV.
2: You know, we we talk a lot about how are you going to demonstrate that you have skills in in outreach. How are you going to demonstrate that you cared about something other than your very specific research topic? And I feel like the barrier here is so low to just go in, do it one time, and if you don't love it, then don't do it again. But at least make yourself available. I don't know. I, I think there's it's just such an amazing opportunity. I wish I had known about it when when we were students.
1: Yeah, and I've always found that when you actually talk to people who aren't in the lab all day about the science you do and you see how cool they think it is, it kind of reminds you that, oh, this is this is pretty neat stuff that I'm doing right now, and and you can lose sight of that during the day-to-day monotony of it at times. We got a, a tweet that you uh, retweeted a, co- a week or so ago that I thought was really relevant
2: to this topic. It was from Will Beckiets. And it said, grad school, colon, you are contractually prohibited from doing other jobs. And if you focus any effort on projects outside of the lab, you will be shamed. Job application. How did you spend your time away from the bench? What makes you a well-rounded candidate? And it's it's so right. You have this notion that you shouldn't be doing anything but bench work. But then
1: the moment you go to try and get a job, they want to know that you've uh, looked outside of your lab. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I really loved about this conversation with Sarah. It it was such a, a case in point of that very point, Dan. And that was, you know, Sarah has had and has a certain viewpoint on her own career outcomes after grad school. But then, you know, based on this, this interest she had, she started, you know, she explored starting the Skype a Scientist program. And she's clearly done a great job with it. She's very passionate about it. And this really, in a lot of ways, these skills that she's gained, um, these experiences she's had starting this nonprofit are likely going to fundamentally change her career after grad school. And the connection, yeah, it's, it's really an amazing opportunity.
2: Um, so how can we hear her do a live version of this? Can we watch her, her do a, a talk on Skype to find out whether it's something we would like to try?
1: Yeah, so... So as, as Sarah alluded to, Skype a Scientist Live is coming up in September, and there are a number of events. So I would encourage you to go to the calendar on, uh, or go to their website, uh, skypeascientist.com, And there's a link right at the top for Skype a Scientist Live, and you can go to the September calendar. But the very first one kicks off on September the 4th. And it's from 1 to 1.30. 2018, 20, once again. September 4th, 2018. Um, one week before the Promega PCR experts. Yep. Uh, but Sarah will be talking about, uh, it's actually the title is Cephalopods with Sarah McEnulty, Um Tuesday, September 4th, 1 to one thirty, And you can not only learn about those cool squid, but you can really get an example of the types of discussions scientists are having on with these Skype sessions. Do you not, You want to know what I remember about cephalopods? What do you remember? It means head feet. I think that's right. Should go back and look it up. I'm Pods,
2: sure it was, cephala,
1: yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was an etymology puzzle sometime in the past. But I'm, I'm looking through some of these, Dan. These are cool. We got sharks and seagrass, we got dinosaurs coming up, volcanoes, dinosaur fish. I mean, this looks cool. There's some cool topics here. I'll get my kids ready to watch. Yeah, no, seriously, I think so. Dan, you, I'm glad you mentioned the benefits to your CV because um, really you know, besides just the good of, of doing outreach and the motivation that can provide.
2: Which is why she's doing it. Let's, let's be Absolutely. very clear. I mean, she, she talked yep. about um, the decrease in trust that we have for scientists, the fact that very few people know what a scientist does, that when children draw a scientist, they think a scientist looks like a white man with fuzzy hair. Um, I think she's doing it for all the right reasons. But there's more.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of funding agencies, some of the big ones, like NSF in particular, um, for their graduate research fellowships, a big part of doing well on those is demonstrating your interest in broader impacts and your experience with not just the impacts you'll make by doing science, but the impacts you as an individual will make beyond the, the research bench. And, and doing things like this really are helpful and demonstrate those broader impacts. Love it. And uh, Josh, I was very inspired by the Skype a Scientist. Oh, were you, Dan?
2: I was, and I wanted to think of other web-based apps that scientists should be using. Okay, so and you I start- came up with some. Well, I, uh, they're terrible, but okay. So I first started with Google, a scientist, but that just seems like what Google is, which is you type in a scientist and you find out about them. So that was that was a non-starter. Netflix, a scientist, Josh. You ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, so you know departmental seminar series. I do. Yeah, you could binge on them.
1: That sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> instead of sitting through one hour talk you have to sit through eight in a row eight in a row <laughs> all day on a saturday in your pjs
2: a scientist and chill was a non-starter so I, I i moved on there was i thought that was kind of a bad one okay etsy a scientist okay so this is your source for hand embroidered lab coats decoratively streaked auger plates mm-hmm. and anything that you can possibly make out of balled up parafilm <laughs>
1: Yeah, I have seen some pretty cool, uh, pretty cool and creative auger plate streaks with bacteria. Yeah, yeah. maybe you could. Nice, you could yeah. do kind of a. I don't know how those would store and ship. You could there. do
2: like um, you know, the old silhouettes of people. You do the side profile of the face and hang it up in kind of Victorian oh, times. That'd yeah, be beautiful. You could
1: you could do some uh, beta lactamase. You know, get a nice blue. Oh, you're yeah. you're really with me. Okay, so Etsy scientist.
2: That's not going to go well either. Um, the last one I came up with is Airbnb a scientist. Oh no, which is. Uh, instead of sleeping in your own animal facility to do time points, you could rent out other lab spaces that are more comfortable, like um, the microscopy room, Mm. super dark and very, very sometimes warm. If you're doing live cell experiments, And smells better and smells better. Yeah. So I think that one could have legs. Um, I don't know if you, if you think of other ones, please let me know. You can tweet to us at Hello Let us know. Do you have to be a scientist to stay
1: in the lab facility, or just anyone? Anybody maybe it. wants yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can get somebody else to do your time points for you. <laughs> hey, that's actually kind of a cool idea. You know, people who want to see what it's like to be a scientist. You know, they could sign up and you just bring them in, teach them to pipette. I think you know, it'd be great. It'd be I'm great.
2: Sure, that wouldn't violate any university rules for health and safety. And they at pay all. you for the opportunity. Yeah, it'd be yeah. wonderful.
1: I think you're onto something, Dan. All right, well, this has been a really cool episode. We had some great listener beer. Uh, we had some fun science in the news. Just like old times, it's been a few weeks since we've done that. Um, and a great a great chat with Sarah. Um, I'm feeling excited about the future, Dan. Uh, and we've got episode 100 to look forward to next time.
2: Waiting to disappoint, Josh. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep trying. If you think of something, please email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Or you can find us on Twitter and
1: Facebook at all the places we mentioned before. What else do you want to say, Josh? Uh, I want to say, if you like the show, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. We certainly love getting the feedback. Um, and if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com. Click the Become a Patron button. Or you can visit patreon.com hellophd. And we would certainly appreciate the beer money. All right, Josh, but well, we will see you next time. All right, Dan, see you next time.